Now I'd like to introduce today's moderator, Ms. Erica Schickel. Erica Schickel is a journalist, book critic, and author of You're Not the Boss of Me, Adventures of a Modern Mom. A frequent book critic and op-ed contributor for the Los Angeles Times, her journalism has also appeared in the LA Weekly, the LA City Beat, Bust Magazine, and High Country News. She is a regular blogger for LA Observed, The Huffington Post, and The Daily Beast. Her essays have been widely anthologized, and she has written several plays, the most recent being Wild America, produced by LA Theater Works for the NPR series, The Play's the Thing. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Erica Schickel. Good evening. James Elroy was born in Los Angeles in 1948. His LA quartet novels, The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, LA Confidential, and White Jazz were international bestsellers. The first two novels of his Underworld USA trilogy, American Tabloid and The Cold 6000, have won numerous international honors. The concluding volume, Blood's a Rover, captures 1968 to 1972, placing Elroy's characters at the heart of four years of incandescent American history. That's the official introduction. <laughs> I am here tonight, I'm filling in for the lovely and estimable Helen Canode, Mr. Elroy's ex-wife. Um, at last minute, she took ill and um, so maybe many of you came here to see Mr. Elroy in conversation with his ex-wife. <laughs> I'm sorry you won't have that pleasure tonight. But instead, you get his girlfriend. <laughs> I offer this tidbit up, not because it's any of your fucking business. <laughs> But because over the last several weeks since this book was published, I've been watching James do numerous interviews and being reviewed widely. The book is enormously successful and wonderful. But all along, I've been very frustrated. He has been asked the same questions over and over and over again, and I feel that people are missing the point. James Elroy is a notorious and brilliant man. He is also a sweetheart. And I hope tonight to bring that version of Mr. Elroy to you, the version that I love so dearly, and I hope you will all leave here tonight feeling somewhat the same way. Ladies and gentlemen, James Elroy. darling, why did you write this book? <laughs> to hear that introduction, <laughs> so ineluctably perceptive, so loving, so brilliant. There are subsidiary reasons that preceded my meeting you. Blood's a Rover is the book that you write when your life burns down and the women cut you loose. 
and you got nothing left but fucking American history. Lord knows there's a lot of that in this book. Yes. Um, you're primarily, of course, a genre writer. You've written a number of, of excellent crime novels. I've met many of your fans, geeky, white, and single, and male. Obese. Primarily, obese. slightly obese, a little pasty, a little zitty. Malodorous. Very male, malodorous, and they, you know. Yeah. Um, this book is very different, and I'm going to assume that you've all read it or are about to buy it later tonight and get right into it. Um, this book is very different from the first two. Uh, it has a different tone, and it has, for the first time, some extremely strong spiritual women in it. And I want to know what it was that changed your mind, that changed your direction between The Cold 6000, which was a stylistic exercise in many ways, um, and cold in some ways. What warmed you up? Helen Cano dumped my ass. <laughs> the book was too rigorous in its presentation mm -hmm. of a very complex text. I had gotten colder and colder and more ruthlessly stylistic and I needed life to kick the shit out of me for a while before I came up with the construction of a young, indefatigable, ingenious 23-year-old boy, a virgin, chasing history in the form of strong women. And of course, as you know, the last third of the book becomes, in a male-dominated drama, a matriarchy. Yes. That character is Donald Crutchfield, who is a real-life person. You met in 2000. Yes. P.I. to the stars. A wheelman. A wheelman. Will you tell the audience what a wheelman is and the circumstances of meeting Donald? Wheelmen are dipshit, alcoholic, drug-addicted, white guys, indigenous to pre-no-fault divorce, Los Angeles. <laughs> they hung out at a gas station around Beverly and Fairfax in souped-up cars and waited for phone calls from skank private eyes and divorce lawyers to tail cheating wives and husbands and catch them in the sack with their lovers to prove adultery and thence get divorce. Mm -hmm. So you knew about Wheelmen before you met Crutch? I did not. You did not? I did not. Crutch gave me a low-life L.A. that even I was, un <laughs> I was unconversant with. So before you know it, I was cutting him in for 10% of the book. Uh -huh. And as you know from having met the man several times, the cocksucker will not shut up. No. <laughs> so when you met him, you thought, this is the missing piece of the book that I want to write? I mean, obviously, you are far too meticulous 
to not have known part of what this third book was going to be, where you were going, right, in your trilogy. Yes. How much did you know going into writing this book that was going to be in the book? How much had you figured out? It's the summer of 1968. Two very bad men, not racist at their core, have been snookered into assassinating the greatest 20th century American, Martin Luther King, and they do not feel good about this. A boy enters their lives, they do not have the will to kill him, and they allow him tenuously to ride the whirlwind of history. I realized that I've written a lot of burned out, boozed out, woman obsessed, lonely, haunted, middle-aged men, chiefly because I am one. (laughs) I had never written a kid Mm -hmm. before, endlessly ingenious, imaginative, horny, pathetic, virginal, and I saw that this boy, boy, 23-year-old boy, who is so stupid that he has a flat-top haircut in the summer of love, was the voice of American history. Well, by that definition, that makes you the voice of American history, because there are more than a few similarities. And we're not going to go there, because everybody else has gone there. But... It brings up a question that I have about American history and as it's remembered. Um, Somebody was saying to me, you know, often people make a choice between, you know, who, who, how do you remember American history through Horton Foote or Margaret Mitchell? Fiction versus nonfiction. And you're fictionalizing American history. You're embroidering it. You're putting your own spin on it. Do you think that people are going to remember your version of American history a hundred years from now? Is that what you hope for? Here's the crowded frame of my American history, and I am 16 years older than Ms. Schickel, so we recall a different American history. I'm 61. I was endlessly (laughs) self-absorbed, unimaginably dim socially, reactionary in the extreme, and bombed out of my fucking gourd. Yet I sensed history bombing around in the crowded frame of my consciousness. And I always had a dim view of a man with a briefcase and a silencer revolver in it sitting just outside the corridors of power. Mm-hmm. Many years later, it occurred to me that I could write novels about the unsung leg breakers of history and give people the private infrastructure of big public events. Mm -hmm. And if their lives were credible, and if my books were factually accurate, my history would have verisimilitude. Mm -hmm. A hundred years from now, people will be reading this book. Do you feel that genre limits you in any way? Limits your accessibility to a wider audience? It limits my accessibility to middle-aged and older 
female readers because it's a primarily male world. One of the things, and it's a confluence of events, preceding my meeting you, and you have two daughters and have written a spellbinding memoir pertaining to motherhood, I realized that I have no children and always wanted a daughter. I realized the courage, the fortitude, the perspicacity it takes to raise children, that thought pervaded my consciousness as I wrote a book about history and bad men. Well, that brings me to uh, your next book that comes out next year, The Hilliker Curse, which is a memoir, um, a companion piece to My Dark Places, which documented your search for the, the murderer of your mother. Um, unsuccessful, uh, but more poignantly, your memories of her that time and, um, and your search for the other. Yes. The other being her, capital H, E-R. You dis- in the Hilliker Curse, you describe yourself in a lovely passage Frail boy bound credible and ghastly deep. Do you think that this book is bringing you closer to that, to the resolution of that? Leaving me out of it, please. Um, And is that what motivates you to write? Is it the, the estimation of women of finding some sort of communion? And how does writing these male novels fulfill that need in you? It's a great, conquest, it's a great question. I cannot fail to however elliptically grant you your concluding power in this moment, despite your rejoinder <laughs> of two and a half minutes ago. Put all that aside, and we should... They are there, I am here. There is Geneva Hilliker, the red-headed nurse from the Wisconsin boondocks. And there is the old joke from the American 1950s. I want to find the guy who invented sex and ask him what he's working on now. (laughs) Which is why so many people write books pertaining to this one topic. Mm-hmm. What I realized upon futilely searching for the killer of my mother and enlisting a very brilliant homicide detective to get me there mm-hmm. is that my mother and I were not a crime story and that no criminal resolution to our story would ever provide me with knowledge of who she was and who I was, that my mother and I were a love story, and that I had to explore the phenomenon of women in me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You say uh, repeatedly in The Hilliker Curse, which is coming out in October of 2010, so that women will love me, so that women will love me. Right. And this is the, the search. This is the search that many of the characters in this book are, are on. Yes. Don Crutchfield... Certainly, lost mother, yes. unrequited love in a number of directions. I wonder if 
he or you, as they are both sort of this beautiful meld of two people in this character, I wonder if finding the mother, the female, the other, will in some way be your undoing or Don Crutchfield's undoing. Don Crutchfield is a creation unobsessed mm-hmm. with the finding of the other. The concluding other that you and I have discussed, however elliptically, a few moments ago, is there, looms. It's a topic of constant refraction, study. The assuming of the feminine perspective And I think that I will simply write a different kind of book now that I have finished The Hilliker Curse Mm -hmm. and it's scheduled for publication. I have an all new type of book, novel, to write. Mm -hmm. A micro history Mm -hmm. set way back when. I don't want to give much more away than that. And it's because I have a covenant of consciousness with God, Mm -hmm. with the people closest to me, with all of you, my readers. I don't want to be one of these older guys that write skinnier and skinnier and skinnier and more and more solipsistic Mm -hmm. books. Uh Uh-uh. I want to write big motherfuckers (laughs) full of density, history, and I want to change. Well, then let's just talk about for a minute the sort of the time frames of, of the trilogy, this book, um, and where you are chronologically. This book is, the, the trilogy goes from 1958 to 72, Correct. is that right? Which is a fairly sweeping span of time, you know, with a lot yes. of events. I know that what you're planning to write next is a very shrunk down real time thing how how much how what are you getting out of that in terms of time frame you talk about crowding the frame in your books are you do you see it as sort of a, an intellectual exercise the way you frame each one of these chapters has a specific date attached to it and not everything that happens in each chapter can be dated it's fictional right so talk a little bit about that, about how the influence that time has on your writing process and how it inspires you. I like recapturing and rewriting history to my own specifications. I get to assassinate political leaders, have horrible moral crises. I get to tail seductive women all over the world. I get to invade Cuba use the greatest drugs of the era, go to Haiti, the Dominican Republic, gamble, become rich, and nobody gets hurt. What I want to do in the next novel is write a micro-history of a place and a time in real time and crowd the frame in a completely different way. Here's what I mean by real time. All the events of the next novel will take place within 24 days. I have to exposit the lives of all the main characters, 
race in that time, gender in that time, industrialization that time, world history, recent police scandals, mm -hmm. the place that I'm writing about in that time, as the characters think it, walking from here to there. I will write a book with greater physical description. I will write a book that requires the discipline of thinking in an entirely different way that will free me to look at the world and look at people and human relationships in an entirely different way. And since I'm very much a brooding and thinking machine, I will have to rise to this occasion. And I think it's a very fine, dramatic occasion that will allow me to live history in an all new way and present it to you and my readers in an all new way as well. Mm -hmm. Very exciting, I think. Um, just getting back to women, since it's the theme of this book, really, in the end, it is the theme of this book, is, yes. is love and the female force as yes. it flows through history and the three main characters. Um, the red goddess Joan being the most notable of the female characters. There's a woman named Karen Sifakis, who is the mother figure, has two small girls. Um, and then the red goddess Joan, who is based on a real relationship that you had. Um, I'm interested to know where she was, you conceived of this book before you had the relationship, am I correct? I conceived the mob going to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. I conceived Dwight Holly and Wayne Tedrow and Don Crutchfield, but I could not have conceived the dialectic, the clash of Jew and Christian, mm -hmm. left and right, gay and straight. Mm -hmm. The entire political sociodynamic had to be embodied during this relationship with this woman who we have discussed mm -hmm. at great length, mm -hmm. named Joan, who's a college professor who lives in San Francisco. And the lessons that I learned from a passionate relationship that was, in the end, a misalliance, largely deep psychic reasons, obviously, but divergence in philosophy. Mm -hmm. So I was faced with two options. Turning my memory of this woman into grievance, resentment, and shit. Or of honoring her and the lessons that I learned from her mm -hmm. and writing a book. Hence, I wrote the book. There's an interesting interweaving whoops, between uh, personal history, real history, Joan is a character who comes, who has run through your life. You write in uh, The Hilliker Curse, and I'm trying to remember if it was in My Dark Places, but I don't think so, about me seeing a girl from a distance when you were a young man getting off the uni high bus. Right. A girl with long brown hair right. holding her books close to her chest, and yes. you were taken with this girl. Yes. And you named her in your mind Joan. I did. 40 years, 35 years later, 
46. 46 years later, you meet a real named Joan. Yeah. Then she makes another transforma transformation back into fiction after she was your emotional bay of pigs. <laughs> um, how much, because you're a man who lies in the dark, imagining things, brooding th upon things, how much of any given experience that you have crosses over into fiction? Do you make a regular exercise of turning the facts of life, of history, of your emotional status into fiction, and does it make it more understandable and bearable for you? Yes, it does, but I'm not out to exercise demons. I'm out to take misfortune and learn from it and exploit it. And I also might add, parenthetically and briefly, that if the Red Goddess Joan was my emotional bay of pigs, you have served as the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> <laughs> Is this not the weirdest interview ever? <laughs> oh, where am I in my notes? All right, let's get out of there and let's talk about... There are ideas in this book People are passing, there's this idea of confluence in the book. And all of these characters are sort of passing ideas, information off to each other, either directly or indirectly. Um, chemistry is a big theme. People are concocting potions. There's a lot of voodoo and, and, um, and also just, you know, Western chemistry, people coming up with, you know, flesh melting potions and so on and so forth. There's also an idea of sort of violence as virus, um, that, that violence and ideas in this historical moment are not just in the zeitgeist, but sort of being handed off to, from one person to the next. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you feel like that's something that you were consciously trying to communicate, think about as you were writing? Is that, was that a theme for you or is that happenstance? It takes 40 years for me to get in touch with history. Mm -hmm. Not surprising that there was the big gap between living the history, mm -hmm. however tenuously and however self-absorbedly, mm -hmm. and actually writing the book. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah, a lot of chemistry, everybody was bombed. Everybody was extremely self-absorbed. Everybody had a rap. Mm -hmm. The races were tenuously coming together. There was a greater acceptance of homosexuality. People were talking about shit, mm -hmm. self-absorbedly, solipsistically, mm -hmm. and what it meant. Mm -hmm. And there were alternatives out in the world, and I wanted to express most of them. I wanted to talk about, without weighing in politically on anybody's side, on the necessity of conversion, the imperative of rebelliousness and revolution, and explore the souls of people who are committed to it in blood and to the death, and how they need each other, 
and how their relationships are often symbiotic and how they are drawn to each other across wide social, racial, political spectrums because they are passionately committed and idealistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, on that subject, you are a notorious fellow who is accused certainly on the internet of, of racism, bigotry mm-hmm. of one sort or another. I will say parenthetically, he's appearing at the Isawan bookstore tomorrow night, and that should be a very interesting reading. Yeah. Um, but this book is really about you confronting that. You have interracial love. You explore, well, you explore it in all, love in all forms, fraternal love you know, um, maternal love, uh, romantic love, love between different people of vastly different ideologies. Was that, do you feel that that has somehow brought you closer to an understanding of maybe some of your own prejudices? And do you, do you consider yourself to have prejudices? I'm a Tory by nature. I have a strong reactionary side. I am an authoritarian in the extreme. I dislike the permissive worldview. I have a certain self-knowledge, and I realize to a large degree that the world I grew up in has passed, Mm -hmm. and now I have two choices become a pissed-off, prematurely old codger, or start digging, or at least accepting Mm -hmm. the world the way it is. And this is a dialogue that you and I have had Mm -hmm. many, many times. And since I am incapable of changing the world in the way most people think, I can explain in hardcover the alternatives. And so I am enjoined by my faith in God to present a wide variety of alternatives and to spread my empathy around to people that I might not politically find empathetic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hence I have in here a closeted black homosexual infiltration cop Mm -hmm. who's quite a brilliant guy who has an oddly equitable relationship with a vicious white L.A. policeman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wasn't trying for moral complexity when I wrote this book. It just came to me. I don't view ambiguity as a moral virtue or a dramatic virtue. Mm -hmm. In the end, as a moral writer, I believe moralistic person, I believe I have an obligation to show all the political alternatives as well as the religious way of life, the spiritual way of life, the devotedly humanistic way of life, and in the end I want you to dig these people and so I weigh on in on the side of empathy on all of them, and I want you, the reader, and you, the readers out there, to love them because they have tried so fucking hard to change the world. Yeah, And you absolutely do. You absolutely do. I mean, you know, 
you come to love Dwight Holly, of all people. Um, I think it's hard for people to understand that that's what you're doing, that this is who you are, and that's been your journey as a writer. Um, I think that there's a lot of demon dog stuff out there that you're partly responsible for. There's this image of you as an outspoken, bad boy of, you know, American literature. And I see a new Elroy emerging in this book and in person. And I want to know, you know, could we possibly find a new moniker for you? Can we, are you moving past the demon dog in any way? And can, and if so, what would it be? What would you like to be seen as, what would you like your next moniker to be? I like the demon dog idea because I love pit bulls and bull terriers and American Staffordshire terriers so damn much. And nothing, nothing sounds worse than an arrogant man trying to be humble. And as (laughs) my ex-wife, who you have met once, Helen Canode once told me, don't be so humble, you're not that great. (laughs) I'm trying with all my considerable diligence, meticulousness, Mm -hmm. your counsel, God's help to write truer and better, be fairer with people, be kinder to people. I can be intemperate. I can be outright brusque with people mm-hmm. and I am trying to be different. I'm entering the last most vital for sure third of my life and I plan to live for a very very long time and I want to do what my greatest creative hero did. And who's my greatest creative hero? You know damn well. It's Beethoven. The worse it got, the more privation he succumbed to, the deafer he got, the more his health deteriorated, the more visionary his music became. Mm -hmm. Stone deaf, on his way out, the late string quartets, the late piano sonatas, and the ninth symphony. I think about Beethoven a great deal. You've seen all the Beethoven regalia at my place. It's a good deal of it. It's a good deal, yes. That's where I want to be, Erica. I want to be Beethoven. Why be humble? Will I succeed? I think Beethoven's the most unfathomable genius ever created by humankind. I will probably not succeed but what a bar to adhere to. Mm-hmm. A bar of personal responsibility and principle. And discipline. Discipline, meticulousness, hard work. Right. Um, all of that is, of course, out there, you know, legendary about you. You write these 400-page outlines, 400-page outline for this book. That's correct. And um, do you find... 
uh, talk about just the, the security that you find in that process of outlining and meticulousness. Note, do you have to go through a series of notes first, right? You make yes. pages and pages of notes. Huh. I like big, dense, complex, well-structured, formal works of art. I want every paragraph to further plot, milieu, characterization. Having this outline, mm -hmm. result of copious note-taking, mm -hmm. assiduous research, allows me to understand that I have a diagram that is inviolate down to the dots on the I's and the crosses on the T's. And that frees me to live extemporaneously in the scenes moment to moment. So I can improvise within individual scenes mm -hmm. because I know the overall picture is locked down to a rat's pubic hair margin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Hilliker curse was not outlined. No. That that first draft or final draft is, oh, is nearly done. How does that make you feel? Does it is does it, is that a nervous making thing to write outside of an outline? It was nervous making. I followed the thread of my life with women emotionally, and I realized that I had created an outline in my soul and in my head that was spiritual, that was religious, mm -hmm. that was emotional, and that allowed for miraculous presences to enter my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I have gotten the signal. I didn't see the signal. She just came down the aisle. Who did? Um, to oh, uh, yes, the, five minute, the five it's minute, the five minute signal. Yeah. Signal. Um, so we can begin, unless there's anything else you want to say extemporaneously on this subject. Have I missed something? You have missed nothing. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Baby, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Good. Good. I have a feeling there's probably a lot of questions out there. Um, hi. Um, in one of those terrible interviews that I saw you do, um, you were talking about the title of your book and where it comes from, and I thought it was an incredible quote, so I was wondering if you would talk about that. The title of Bloods of Rover drives from the poem, A Shropshire Lad, long, long poem by A.E. Hausman. It goes thusly, clay lies still, but blood's a rover, breath's aware that will not keep up lad when the journey's over there'll be time enough for sleep. It's about moral exhaustion. It's about bad men looking for a place to lie down and rest. It's about spiritual transcendence and bad men in love with strong women. My favorite theme. Thank you, James. I wanted to know, I really thought that uh, Marsh Bowen's art collection in the book was <laughs> going to become a much richer sort of final uh, blast that somebody would snag his art collection? Yes. Well, Marsh Bowen has an art collection. I don't want to give away who Marsh Bowen is. I don't care very much for art. I appreciate a good picture as much as the next guy, but I don't live or die for it. 
Hence the decision. Yeah. Uh, just curious if you're still talking with Joan, or uh, did you talk to her about the book uh, before you... Uh, I have out? not been in contact with Joan since the summer of 2006. Yeah. She knew I was going to write the book. Yeah. Uh, you said that you're an assiduous researcher. Um, I'm just curious... Uh, if you could just talk about your methods a little bit. I hire researchers who compile <laughs> fact sheets and chronologies so that I don't write myself into factual error. Then I extrapolate fictionally with real life and fictional characters. I was very lucky in Blood's a Rover, which takes place largely in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, places I had no desire to visit. Hence, I sent a friend of mine to come back with slides, pictures, diagrams, and maps. That's all I needed. It comes down to this. Can you view a strange new locale with a person's all new eyes and make them feel the place like they, and hence you, are viewing it for the first time. I just I want to interject there too because I feel like people in in the estimation of your work, people always focus on plot, on the outrageousness, on the violence, the drug use, the the racial invective, all of this stuff. And I feel that you are underappreciated as a writer. I think that you your your prose is so razor sharp, so vivid, so deeply felt, and so meticulous. And people tend to ignore that. I don't see that dealt with in reviews of your work. Um, and people are just reading for story, which is great. You, you do wonders with plot. But do you ever feel like you get the short shrift on that score just as a line-by-line -line writer? The style of some of my books, The Cold 6000 and White Jazz in particular, is hyperbolic, hyper-concise, exaggerated, tailored to the events that I'm describing. And I made a conscious effort to write a more explicated style here. What I get in Europe, aside from adulation, is something... <laughs> And that I don't get in America, and I think I understand what's behind it. The books are very, very strenuous to read. Mm -hmm. They are very male. I am nothing if not a Tory, wasp, male, authoritarian, heterosexual, born in Los Angeles at mid-century, and it's a sensibility that puts people off. <laughs> Even as I critique this sensibility, people know that to one degree or another, I espouse it. Mm -hmm. That's that. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Craig Quintero. My question is, um, it's sort of an interesting strategy to have um, your ex-wife and now your current girlfriend be the person you're talking about or introducing the book with. And I was wondering if you could talk about the attention behind that. I don't understand the tension behind the intention. The, the intention. intention. Oh, okay. 
I thought you were discussing my no. st- stress level no. or something. No, no, no. No, no. No, we're both stressed out behind this, but, you know. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, there's always later. And... <laughs> I begged him not to say stuff like that yeah. before the... That's so bland. <laughs> That's so bland. Helen Canode has anemia. Helen Canode's my ex-wife. She lives with Margaret, my ex-dog, in Austin, Texas. She thought, similarly as Erica Schickel does, that we needed a different pair of eyes and a different mindset to address this book specifically a feminist viewpoint. Then Helen fell ill. Who better to critique this book and who better to understand it than Erica Schickel? Hence the choice. And I was available. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Will you be doing the audio book version of the Hilliker Curse in your voice? That's an excellent question. I may do the audio version of The Hilliker Curse. It's a shorter rather than a longer book. There's no dialogue. It's, nar- it's all narrative. The tough thing about reading books aloud is differentiating voices. You have to be a wide range of characters, different genders, races, ages. Big pain in the ass. I read the unabridged version of My Dark Places, not a very good abridgment, but it's all narrative. So that remains a possibility. You, being this fabulous writer, almost on the verge of uh, genius, who would you have chosen tonight to be the interviewer, and would you have had different responses? Uh, could you repeat the question, please? I- <laughs> <laughs> and remove almost from the genius sentence? <laughs> I don't think she is repeating the question. I, I, I... Um, we have time. <laughs> no, really. Um, you're obviously a fascinating author, and you have a wonderful, special reputation. I'm just wondering, if you had your choice, who would you have chosen as an interviewer tonight, and would you have had different responses about your work? That was my choice. Okay. Woman sitting to my right. I, I, cannot, I cannot conceive of any other responses other than the ones that I've uttered. Um, first of all, I think that the reviewers um, are bad. I, I think it's not that your books, um, I think your books are amazing, and I'm a female, and I love them, and they are dense, and they are well written. And I think reviewers don't know how to write reviews, and I think all they know how to do is to write a synopsis, and they don't know how to get into the depth of it, and they don't understand it, and they should probably be sitting at home and watching movies and eating popcorn. But my question... I think you're quite often right, and so you have to develop a tough skin. Yeah. You love reviewers to the extent they love you, dismiss them to the extent that they dismiss you, (laughs) ridicule them to the extent that they ridicule you, and I don't give it a hell of a lot of thought. The book goes out there and is assessed by people in ways that I will never be able to assess. And there's something mystical about that. I pervade the consciousness of people anonymously. 
And I like that. That was just an aside. I wanted to know, especially when you were when you were talking about voices, do you write character bios? Because you you come up with the voices and they are so specific. And how do you come up with their voices on the page that you might not be able to read into a microphone to have the book on tape, but how do you come up with them on the page? And do you, you know, how long are your bios? And do you, you know, what's your process there? I don't write character bios. I start out with general notes on characters. I come to know who they are. The outlines that I have are so assiduously detailed that I allow myself, as I previously stated, to live in the scenes extemporaneously and I make every conscious effort in the moment to differentiate dialogue. And I have a very, very good ear for anachronism, hence I very seldom fall into that trap. I like the lingo of other times. I like lingo, period. I like Americanese. I like racial invective. I love Yiddish. I love bebop talk. I love black shit talk. And I love alliteration. I love clan talk. I like writing anything that starts with a hard C and putting a K at the beginning of it. That to me is funny shit. I love the vulgarity of the American idiom and I don't patronize it. Mr. Railborn, you are looking good. You sound good. Would you grace us with a bit of your the book in your own, that we can hear your voice? You know, you should read, actually, just a little bit, because this question made me remember a thing I was going to say, which is that you're hilariously funny, and I don't think you're appreciated enough on that level. And some of the best stuff in this book is is um, transcripts of dialogue between J. Edgar Hoover and Dwight Hawley and Richard Nixon and Dwight Hawley. And... Uh, and Earlier today, we sort of conceived of an idea of doing a dramatic reading for you, and then I, I exnate it. But I just, just, just give them, give them a few, a few lines of this stuff. Okay, let's see. We're going to start. Not on the part that I marked. No, we're going to start with Hoover. <laughs> let me tell, let me tell you a few things about Jagger Hoover to start with. Don't he's a bad guy, bad bad guy one of the premier 20th century American villains, disingenuously asserted that organized crime did not exist because he couldn't prosecute it and win, and hassled a lot of harmless leftists. He was also never a drag queen, much less one who went out and dragged at the Waldorf Astoria. He was a celibate homosexual who got his rocks off on having bantering, jockeying, relationships with his macho goon FBI agents, similar to Dwight Hawley here in this transcript. This is Hawley talking to J. Edgar Hoover. I'll read a few seconds of that. Then I'll go to Hawley talking to Hoover's arch nemesis, President Tricky Dick Nixon. Hoover, good morning, Dwight. Hawley. Good morning, sir. Hoover, 
Your telex implied that you have some bad news. Tell it like it is, as President Nixon often states in his fawning efforts to sound au courant with long hairs and insurrection-seeking Negroes. Holly, yes, sir. Hoover, there's also Can You Dig It? and Are You Cool With It?, which are new favorites of the white radio personalities who have taken up the chant that I am too old for this job. Holly, yes, sir. (laughs) Hoover, right on, brother, is, is an expression that is considered in the groove these days. I addressed Vice President Agnew in that manner last week. He gave me a clenched fist salute. I was deeply gratified. It was akin to receiving the French Legion of Honor. The following night, Agent Dwight Hawley talks to President Richard M. Nixon. Nixon, Dwight, good evening. Hawley, good evening, Mr. President. Nixon, you're not taping this, are you, Dwight? (laughs) Hawley, no, sir. Are you? Nixon, yes, I am. (laughs) I've got a device that records my calls automatically, but one of my slaves comes by and dumps the tapes in a vault. They'll never see the light of day, and we'll be pushing up daisies if they do. Holly, I'm cool with it, sir. (laughs) Nixon, I can dig it. (laughs) Did you vote for me, Dwight? Holly, I'm not registered to vote, sir. Nixon, you're a bad citizen. You're like your friend Tedro, who messed with my friend Bibi Rebozo. He's the first friend, Dwight. I enjoy these talks of ours, and Wayne has been instrumental in facilitating our arrangement with the Italians, but Bibi is Bibi, and Wayne fucked with him. Holly, may I make a few blunt comments, Mr. President? Nixon, Tell it like it is. (laughs) Holly, Wayne Tedrow is a very competent man given to the occasional extravagant gesture. The foolishness that he interdicted may have proven detrimental to the casino build in the DR. Mr. Rebozo's pet exile group is composed of dubious far-right ideologues with a giant oozing hard-on to depose Fidel Castro. And as you once told me, sir, the fucker is here to stay. I would describe Mr. Rebozo's exile comrades as heedless and whimsical at best and gratuitously psychopathic at worst. Nixon, you're absolutely correct, Dwight. Moreover, the DR is a shithole. The mob may take a bath on their hotels, and Joaquin Balaguer is solidly anti-red and a good deal more tractable than Rafael Trujillo. That cocksucker was a nightmare. You wouldn't believe the CIA file on him. The shit he pulled with his so-called bitter rival, Papa Doc Duvalier, was horrific. They looted land, smuggled emeralds, foreclosed banks, and split the profits. While they're doing this, the goat is slaughtering Haitian refugees, and Papa Doc is fucking half of his girlfriends. Holly, strange bedfellows, sir. Thank you, Mr. Elroy. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here.
Thank you, everybody. Erica Schickel, ladies and gentlemen.